If you're tired of bad news, if you need some positivity, if you want to support small businesses, then welcome to Happy Grateful Blessed with Kaysville's own mayor, Tammy Tran. Here, you'll get to see the best of humanity from within Utah's hidden gem, Kaysville City. Every month, you'll discover small businesses, hear unique and incredible stories, and understand the difference you make in this wonderful city. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you'll never miss a chance to find a new business to support and learn what makes a city like this one work as well as it does. So join us as we explore Happy Grateful Blessed with Tammy Tran. I'm here today with my good friend, mentor, and fellow planning commissioner, fellow Kaysville servant, Wilf Summercorn. Thanks for being here. Happy to do it. Thanks for being willing to talk to me about land use and all things public, well, all things planning commission, I guess, really. Right. And land use. Um, will you introduce yourself for us? Um, sure. Um, I'm Wilf Summercorn. I... Uh, Retired uh, a couple of years ago from uh, being a professional land use planner. Um, I got into the field uh, a number of years ago when, with my degree, I was trying to figure out, well, what do I do with this degree in geology and geography? And um, I actually did an internship at Davis County as uh, um, uh, in their planning department and thought, this is really cool. I really like this. And so I went on to graduate school. Um, at the University of Tennessee, and then came back, uh, worked for a short time at the Wasatch Front Regional Council, and then went to work for Davis County, where I had done my internship and uh, really liked those folks. And I wound up being there for 27 years, and the last 14 of which I was the director of the Department of Community and Economic Development for the county. Um, just about the time I'd been there that long, I was starting to go, you know, maybe I need to try doing something different in my life. A good friend of mine, Ralph Becker, was elected mayor of Salt Lake City, and they were looking for a new planning director, and uh, I was approached and asked if I would be interested. And I said, sure. And so uh, they uh, took me on, and I was the planning director for Salt Lake City for um, for eight, six years. Six years. Um, and then uh, from there, uh, one of the council members, Carlton Christensen, he was asked by the new county mayor, Salt Lake County Mayor Ben McAdams, to start mm -hmm. a new department of regional planning and transportation. And he asked if I would be interested in coming over and working with him. And I really respect Carlton, really like him. He's a good man. We He's like now at him UTA, a lot. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I said, sure. And so I went over there and worked there for five years as the director of uh, regional planning and transportation at Salt Lake County. And uh, I retired from there. And I retired because my wife was retiring from uh, her position. Uh, she taught math and calculus at Clearfield High School. And she said, I'm retiring now and I'm going to travel. Are you coming with me? <laughs> and you said, and yes. I said, sure, I will. That's good. Um, uh, we have lived in Kaysville for 35 years. Um, and so it's been uh, a long time association. I have thought over the years that I ought to be more involved in my local community, but the demands of my job and everything, I just never really had much time. I was gone to so many night meetings and everything else. Um, when I finally retired, I said, I really ought to give back to the place I live in now. And so I, I put in my name to be on the planning commission and was selected. And I've been on the planning commission now for, I think, four years around there. Around there. Um, about the, and you were on the planning commission at the time. when I, I was. And we are so lucky to have you. You've been such a great mentor, such a great friend, educating me helping me to understand what our role is as planning commissioners. A lot of people don't understand even what planning commissioners do and the purpose of planning commission. So I really appreciate you being on because I want to explore planning 
and especially as it relates to cities and all of the things going on in the world. Now that I get to serve as mayor, it's been an interesting switch for me from being a planner and a council person. I don't get to vote on things, so that's that's kind of frustrating, actually, yeah. a lot of times, because I've seen things come through and really have an opinion, and I try to advocate for it, right. but yeah. but I, at the end of the day, can't really do anything about it. But what you can do is you can do something about it. So will you tell us a little bit about, I guess, the role of planning commissions in a city? Oh, And we sure. can kind of start with that and go forward. Well, one of the biggest issues that every city deals with is land use. In fact, um, this is kind of interesting. And Maybe just as an aside again, so in the uh, Professional Planners Association, uh, Planning Association and Utah's, the Utah chapter of the American Planning Association, I've been the legislative chair there for, since 1990, um, and because I just saw how important that is. But and as part of that legislative role, one of the things that you see in trying to help uh, local officials um, understand land use is that at the local government level, there are two main drivers for people to run for office. And the two big issues that always come up, taxes Mm -hmm. and land use. Um, Public safety is a big part of it too, but uh, those are probably the two biggest. And those, whenever you look back at elections, those are the two things that people talk about the most when they're running for being on the city council or for mayor is taxes and land use. And so it's something that's really important. It's something that's uh, right in the heart and soul of every community. And so um, to me, that's, really important to help people understand how the land use processes work and what the laws are and the guardrails that we have that we need to operate within. And so um, the planning commission, if, a, if a, under state law, if a community is going to regulate land use and almost every community does, interestingly enough, there are a few that don't. I'm surprised to hear that. Yeah, they're Mostly usually rural. really small communities. Okay. Yeah, rural, but, but there are a few that don't. But if you are going to, you are required to have a planning commission. You must have a planning commission. And the role of the planning commission is to mainly to um, make recommendations to the elected officials on land use. And the specific roles are, they are to prepare and recommend a general plan for the community and recommend that onto the elected officials. And then they are to prepare and recommend onto the elected officials, the land use ordinances, the zoning code, the zoning map, um, what properties are zoned, and subdivision ordinance and other land use regulations. And uh, the city council or the elected officials cannot take any action in adopting those things without first getting a recommendation from the planning commission. So that's the primary role of the planning commission. And then planning commissions also do a lot of other stuff. in fact, in many places, they spend more time doing stuff like approving conditional use permits mm-hmm. and subdivision plats and stuff like that. And that's on the administrative side. And they don't have to do that, but they can be designated what's called a land use authority for certain actions under the state code. And they do that. And as I say, a lot of them spend more time doing that than they actually do, which is what I think they should be spending more of their time in, which is actually planning. Planning. <laughs> And uh, thinking about the future of the community. Well, and I appreciate what you've done as a planning commissioner over the time that I've worked with you and you've, you've been a planning commissioner is really uh, make those changes so that planning commissioners and planning commission can spend more time planning rather than doing all of the administrative type type approvals and work. Right. And it's been, it's been a great shift that we've seen in Kaysville where planning commissioners, I hope, now feel a lot more empowered to really do their job. 
Yeah, I think we've got a great planning commission. We've I got do some too. good people there, and you know, we have some great discussions, and so it's uh, and you know, they they I think they know their role and and take it pretty seriously. It's a good group. Well, and it's great to have you there because you've helped educate them as they've come on and become new planning commissioners. Because really, there aren't any specific requirements to serve on planning commission, other than having a, a desire to serve and an interest in land use. Yeah, and so other than that, it's really. It, anyone can have an opportunity to do it. And so people do come in off the street without a lot of information. Yeah. As we're talking about land use, we've seen some interesting things happen in Kaysville. And I was going to ask you first off, so as I've served in planning commission with you, I know that you and I had both been advocates for, you know, maybe some diversity where it's appropriate. Not maybe, for sure. I've been, a, a, I've been um, an advocate for that. But I have seen you make decisions where people will come in and say, hey, I want to rezone this property, and you've voted to not recommend it. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just wondering, how do you decide what's appropriate and what's not appropriate? Well, the main guide is the plan, the okay. general plan, uh, is what's being asked for um, consistent with what the general plan says. And, you know, being a planner, I'm always one to say, we ought to follow our plan. That's <laughs> why we did it in the first place. True. Um, and so that's, um, that's the, the primary thing that I think ought to be guiding. But then you also have to look at things like what are the specifics about the property, where it's located, um, you know, what's around it, um, and what may be happening in the future. Are things changing? Um, and are we maybe going to have some different circumstances in the future? And um, that's really, I think, what ought to be guiding what the planning commission looks at and does and what they recommend. Um, you know, when I say how things change, um, really some, one thing that's exploded over the last couple of years has been the housing affordability issue and just the uh, ability to, to, for people to be able to find housing that's affordable within their price range. And it's getting less and less. And while local land use regulations aren't the only dictators of that, they, they are a factor. And is there something we can do about that? And, and sometimes it may be something that we have to look and say, well, yeah, okay, I know this is what our plan said from a couple of years ago, but things have changed. And maybe we need to start looking at doing things differently. And then we ought to go back and make sure our plan reflects that too. But Maybe we need to start thinking about doing things a little bit differently here right away. Well, and as we're talking about the plan, as you know, because you've been knee deep in it, we are in the process of updating the general plan from a couple of years ago. We're still working on that as a planning commission and as a city council. But in terms of housing affordability, that's a hard thing. It is. I've heard affordability versus attainability. They basically... They mean different things, but they basically mean the same thing. And it's really hard because, as you know, people will come in, the public, the residents, and say, you talk about affordability, these townhomes are not affordable. Right. And they're right. right. They're not affordable. Yeah. And so you talked about maybe doing some things as a city to sort of, what can we do? Yeah. I mean, we can't control the price of land. No. I mean, we, in a way we do because zoning a lot of times will... Will uh, determine the price of land or the okay, cost of land. Okay, so expand on that, will you, so um, that people understand? Well, I mean, if you if you zone a piece of property commercial mm-hmm. versus agricultural, it's true. It's probably going to sell for a whole lot more because now somebody feels like they can build a business on it. And the same thing kind of goes for housing. Um, you know, uh, some housing, uh, depending on how you zone it, the, for the different kinds of housing, it'll affect the price of the property. But interestingly enough, now we have a situation where property is selling for 
crazy amounts of money, almost regardless of what it's owned. Because I think people think that they can do almost anything with it now and make a profit. Mm-hmm. And I think they're about right, but it's, it's been really limited. Those who don't have the means or the resources or the income, they're not in the game. They're know, not. And, and it's professional people. It's not people who are, um, you know, 20 years old. Yeah. The 20 year olds can't afford it, but also the 40 year olds yeah. are having a hard time affording properties. That's right. So, so from that standpoint, you know, we do have, uh, local land use regulations do have an effect. Um, and then it's, you really, part of the issue has been, um, driving the availability of housing, uh, affects the cost. Um, because if everybody wants a house and there's only so many houses available, then the people that can bid the most are the ones that are going to wind up with it. And that drives up the cost. And what that argues for is, well, we ought to just be building more housing period. And it's interesting because in Utah, we actually have been building more housing in the last year or two, um, and the prices still aren't coming down, which, you know, I don't know. It's an interesting dynamic, an interesting market. But I think, I think part of it is, is that it would be even worse if we weren't building we more weren't housing, doing. but it's, it's, um, it's, it's really an odd time. Now that interest rates have gone up as much as they have and some other things that have happened in the economy. Maybe it'll cool the housing market off a little bit, but so far we're not really seeing it. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Well, and even though the prices on, you know, for payments are higher, um, I'm hearing that the demand isn't going away. And so because of that, prices still will probably stay pretty high. Everything that I've seen says that while we may have eased the pressure um, in the housing market, prices probably are not going to come down. Not in Utah anyway. Not in Utah. Um, which is just, wow, <laughs> it, it just blows your mind. It is. It's incredible because the rates have increased so much that it makes it really expensive. And I was talking to a builder, gosh, last week, and he said out of maybe 10 contracts, five are um, are, are not going to happen now. Are yeah. not going to happen because people can't afford their payments anymore. Yeah. And so maybe a 50% reduction in overall, I don't know, requirements or needs, but it's still not going to eliminate the need for housing. And yeah. so, so it's, it's hard because here in Kaysville, as you know, we really aren't in favor of high density. Right. And, and also high density is a term that means different things to different people. <laughs> in Kaysville, in West Kaysville, high density is a third of an acre. Yeah. And in other places, high density is, I don't um, even know how high it goes. Well, it goes way high. <clears throat> and I tell you, you know, having been in Salt Lake City for for six years, <clears throat> when we talk about high density there, we're generally talking about something upwards of 25 units per acre. 25 units. Oh. Um, you know, that you're not going to see that in Kaysville. And no. in a lot of re- suburban communities, you're not ever going to see. When they talk about higher density in suburban communities, you're talking about maybe five or six units per acre. And even that is sometimes a stretch. Oh, it in, is. In these communities. So um, it does mean different things to different people and different places. But that low of a number, um, wh- which I think is low, if, let's say six units per acre, y- it's fairly easy to integrate that into almost any kind of a community and neighborhood. And yet there's resistance even to do that. There is resistance. So as we're talking about that, there was a property on Main Street, the commun- referred to as the community garden property. Mm-hmm. Um, the recommendation was 
they wanted eight units, didn't they? Six, I think. Six, six units? Yeah. They wanted six units. Your, the zoning would have allowed up to eight, Up to I think, eight, that's true, but they, they were, were asking, asking for six. For mm-hmm. um, what was your recommendation on that? Well, so <laughs> um, I, I happened to not be at the planning commission meeting oh, when they made the okay. final recommendation, but my feeling was that um, uh, it, it should be, it, it was not a problem to zone it for that because on that property, um, normally you, they would have been allowed for um, six or three houses. Mm-hmm. And then under the city's existing code, they could have done twin homes on there. So they could have allowed for six units. For six. And, um, and so the rezone that they were asking for to go up higher could have allowed eight, but they were still only looking to do six. But they were looking to do it um, as kind of a multi-story building or a multi-unit building. You know, for me, it was more of an issue of, okay, how many units are you talking about? And Mm -hmm. if you're talking about six units and you can do them as twin homes, they'll look just like houses. They will, right. Three separate driveways. And I thought, you know, do it. Mm -hmm. Go for that. Um, In the end, the the, uh, applicant decided that's not what they wanted to do. They wanted to still try for the higher density zoning and, and, um, the planning commission ultimately wound up recommending in favor of that. If I had been at the meeting, I personally would not have voted for it. Not because I don't think that the higher density was appropriate, but because I think they could have done what they wanted to with With, the zoning that they had. And they would still have gotten six units. And my understanding is now, since the council turned Mm -hmm. down that zoning, that's what they're going to try and do. That they're going to come back. It was really smart of you to to point that out and to be able to say, hey, you can accomplish exactly what you want. Now, from the builder, developer um, uh, side of the table, they said, no, it's cheaper for us to just build a long uh, (coughs) six-unit complex. Yeah. And and that's what they wanted, and that's what they were trying to go for. Yeah. And see, and that uh, that gets to the issue of affordability then Mm -hmm. again. Exactly. And so it probably would have been somewhat cheaper to build it that way. Sometimes you have to balance those things off against integration into the neighborhood. Um, and in that case, I thought, you know, the integration into the neighborhood and still getting six units might have been the better way to go. And, um, but, and I think that's ultimately what's going to happen. It'll, it'll be interesting to see. In that situation, the neighborhood was very organized. Yeah. That was probably one of the most organized neighborhood outreaches that I've, that I've seen so far in my service here in Caseville. And what do you think about that organization and the effect it had on council? Oh, there's no question that uh, neighbors, um, neighborhood residents coming in have a big effect on local officials. Um, if, you know, I've been writing about this a you, little you bit. Have. And, uh, for, and for folks that maybe don't know, I've got a blog that I've been doing on the uh, Utah Land Use Institute website. And um, I, one of the issues that I talk a lot about, um, and Paul Allred, who's also on our planning commission, he's been writing about this as well, which is the, the impact um, that comments, uh, public input are made into the, our processes uh, for local land use. And the problem is, is what you do get is you get the residents in the neighborhood who generally all own single family homes mm-hmm. and usually have owned them for a long time. So they're, you know, invested. in a pretty good position mm-hmm. Influential. the market isn't that way anymore and the conditions aren't that way anymore, but they're also very active, you know, voters usually. And so they have a big impact when they come in and talk to those local officials. 
When in reality, when you look at the input that's coming in, the input isn't really community-wide. It's, um, it's it's You're getting it from that small segment of people who live in that neighborhood who admittedly will be the most affected mm-hmm. by what's built there, but also you kind of have to look at what's of benefit to the entire community. And the other segment that you never hear from in these public input parts of it are people who aren't living here yet. The it's people true. aren't living here because they can't afford or they haven't been able to buy or rent a house in the community um, or a place to live in the community. And so who's speaking for them? You know, and, and sometimes I, it's interesting because you hear people say, I really want, my kids really want to come back and live in this town and they want to live in it just like it looks. Well, are your kids ever going to be able to afford to do that? <laughs> right. You know, given the, the, what's happened with the price of housing, no, they're probably going to have to go and find an apartment to rent. And have we got apartments in our community? Mm, um, you know, and where are they going to be able to do that? And so who speaks for them? Well, and when I first when I first started serving on planning commission like twenty plus years ago, we didn't have these issues because Caseville was pretty small. Yeah, um, there was really not a lot of development west of I fifteen, maybe a couple houses, lots of farmland, and so we didn't have these issues. When I came back to planning commission in the last you know couple years, it's been a, a progression and a it, it's been a it's been a process of seeing things really change in a radical fast way. And when I say radical change, it doesn't mean that Kaysville is changing, but just the requests are changing. Yeah. And we have an, an increase of, you know, zoning requests. And so for me, it's been hard because on one hand, I completely understand where people are coming from. On the other hand, I, I just assume that people who aren't speaking are okay with it. I figure if you're not at the meeting, then you must be all right with what's going on. Now that's an assumption that shouldn't be made because yeah. people are not aware and they're not paying attention because it does affect affect them in the same way that it would affect them living next door to it. Right. And so who speaks for those people as well? Right. You know, because we just think, well, okay, 10 of you are here and you're really passionate, but what about the rest of the city and how does this development impact the rest of the city? Right. Because as you know, lots of people are in favor of zone changes and higher density in someone else's neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> they think, oh, it's really going to be great across the street or it's going to be great on the east side of town. That's where it should happen. Yeah. We call that not in my backyard. Not in NIMBY. my NIMBY, right. It's fine over there, but not in my backyard. Yeah. And people on Facebook will say, oh yeah, I think, I think it's great. And they'll, you know, we're campaigning and they'll say, oh yes, we need, we need diverse housing. And then it shows up in their neighborhood and they are so upset. Mm-hmm. And the emails start to fly. I voted for you. I can't believe you mm-hmm. <laughs> may or may not support this. Mm-hmm. And so it's hard. It's hard to be a public official. It is. And to to represent your community, especially if it's in your neighborhood. Right. And and try to have a logical, emotion free decision making that's process that's strategic. Yeah. And and so it's hard. And I don't think that'll ever change. No, and it's been interesting too, <clears throat> a professor out of Dartmouth College wrote about this uh, several years ago um, uh, in a book called Zoning Rules. And um, <clears throat> it's um, a lot of people have substantiated and picked up on this, but um, people, the single family home has, has, as much as being a place, a necessary place to live, it's become an investment for a lot of people too. It's right, that's true. a lot of their um, personal uh worth is tied up in their home. Mm-hmm. Their and, savings, their retirement. And so then they think that any change in the neighborhood around them is going to drive down their value and they're going to oppose that. The interesting thing is, is all the research shows that moderately increasing density close to single family homes does not lower the property value. If anything, it sometimes even raises the property value. 
um, for a variety of reasons. One, there's the possibility that that property could now maybe become higher density. But the interesting thing is, is diverse communities seem to be more dynamic and better communities mm -hmm. than communities that are all just one type of thing. And so getting a little bit of a mix in there is oftentimes a very positive thing for communities. The problem is that a lot of people don't see it that way. They think that if they're going to get apartments or twin homes even mm -hmm. or something, maybe just down the street from them, that's going to lower their property value. And the evidence is not there to substantiate that. It's, it's not at all. I used to do mortgage lending and commercial development. Uh, and, you know, being on planning commission and city council, people would say, it's going to ruin my value. Their house as a single family, 4,000 square foot house is not compared to a twin home. Right. And and I I kept telling people that this this has no reflection or impact upon your in upon your house. Now, I think if they were the only single family little circle or cul-de-sac in the middle of higher density, maybe it would. Yeah. But even then, I think that it puts more value on the single family property. So that's been a hard a hard thing for me to listen to. Yeah. Because I like you said, the data doesn't support it. Yeah. But it's people's opinions. It is. And the and other thing that becomes more insidious about it is and I'm uh, you know, people are going to say that I'm saying this and I'm being unfair, but I'll tell you, I have heard this. I've been a, I was a professional planner for 39 years and I'm still doing this, mm -hmm. working for the Utah Land Use Institute on a part-time basis. I can't tell you the number of times that in meetings when higher density zoning was proposed nearby, the comment was made from some people, we don't want those kinds of people mm -hmm. in our neighborhood. We've heard that in Kaysville. So like, sad. Like there's a different class of people that moves into something just because it's a little bit higher density, you know? Yeah. And wow. I mean, you know, I, I would dare say that most of us have lived in an apartment at some point in our lives. Absolutely. That made us one of those kinds of people. Exactly. And is that what you don't want? You know, and it's well, just, I agree a hundred percent. It's just so arrogant of us to say those things. And I've heard them. I've heard the comments. I've read the comments. People email comments. They come and say it in public meetings yeah. and it's disappointing. Yeah. It really is because those people are all of us, Yeah, you know, in different stages. And there are kids and mm -hmm. they're, you know, just, yeah. They are. Now, Kaysville, obviously we don't have the land availability. We don't have the capacity to ever become a high density city. We don't want to be that. We're a hometown and we pride ourselves in being single family for the most part. However, I have heard that some legislation has been discussed. I don't know if it'll, if they're serious about it, um, of some things, trends happening in California. I think it's California where they, they've eliminated single family zones. Yeah. Well, it's not just California. It's all over the country now. I, I know uh, you've talked about it in places. your blog, but yep. what do you think about that happening here? I hope it doesn't. So it's called zoning reform. Okay. It's a bit, it's an issue that's really kind of blossomed in the last couple of years. And um, in California, in a large number of large part of California, and in a number of other places, some other, other states and in some cities in particular, like Minneapolis and Seattle um, and a few other cities, they have actually um, done away with, so to speak, done away with single family zoning. In other words, that the only thing you can build in that zone is a single family home. They now allow by right um, duplexes, triplexes, may, maybe fourplexes in some cases, even more than that on any property in any residential zone. So, um, and part of the rationale behind that is when you look at, <clears throat> um, how much property in a community is zoned just for single family homes in a lot of communities, it's really high. It's like 
60, 70, 80%, and some 90%, that's all you can build is a single family home. That really restricts the variety and types of housing, which affects the value. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, in some communities, in some states, they have said, uh, and there's also a, a very prominent book out <clears throat> and researched by a number of scholars that indicates kind of the history with zoning, that a lot of it was used um, for racial purposes. That's you know, what I've heard, to, discrimination, for discriminator, keeping certain people right, away. Because of economics, mm-hmm. you know, because minorities tended to be lower income and mm-hmm. there was, this was a way to keep them out. <clears throat> and that's all pretty well documented. So there, there's that aspect in a lot of places as well. Um, but uh, so what some of these states and communities have done now is they have said um, in any residential zone in the state, you are allowed to build single family homes, duplexes, triplexes, maybe fourplexes at a minimum. You have to allow for that much. Um, is that going to happen in Utah? It's been discussed. It hasn't happened. I, I kind of don't think it will. I hope not. I would actually fight against that. I don't yeah. think that that's appropriate. I mean, I, I don't, I can see where it's a solution. It's not as bad a solution as a lot of people think, because there's this whole range of what we call middle, missing middle housing, mm-hmm. which I've is basically term, like yeah. duplexes, triplexes, maybe fourplexes. And they can be made to look very much like single family homes. They can, the character of them can fit into neighborhoods very well, and you get more housing and generally less costly housing doing that. So I can see the rationale for it and, and how it would work. Utah did pass, though, um, as a number of other states have now and are continuing to do, um, saying that in single-family residential zones, you must allow for uh, what's called an accessory dwelling unit. Mm-hmm. People call them mother-in-law apartments or granny flats or something like that. But that's basically that you turn a portion of your home into an apartment. A lot of people use it for like the mother-in-law to live in or for, you know, their elderly uh, mother or father or parents to live in, or maybe their college age kids who now married a place to live. Um, And that's, that was passed and that is now in place in the state of Utah. And that's internal. Right. Internal it has to be within a house. And it ha- then the house has to be inhabited house. by property owners. It, yes. I okay. mean, that's something that can be required. Okay. It's not required by the state Oh, it's code, not? Okay. But it is allowed, that, and a lot the of communities can. have passed as part of their regulation to say that one of those units has to be occupied by the owner. Which um, I think is great. Yeah, and, and I think the yeah. rationale behind that is some people have seen this as a way to um, increase the Airbnb factor. You know, where people will buy houses, turn them into rentals, and then rent them out on Airbnb. And now they can do two of them, mm, you know, right. and so it's uh, for Which, the price of one. And in mass would mm. definitely change uh, the feel of a neighborhood. It, yeah, it definitely it could. would. And that's the whole B&B thing is a really big issue. Short-term rentals. Mm-hmm. Short-term rentals. And in Caseville, we don't, we don't have a law that or an ordinance that allows short-term rentals, and we don't tax them. Mm-hmm. So there has been discussion about maybe we should look into that because... It may be, it's going to become more popular. Yeah. What do you think about that? Well, I think certainly short-term rentals are becoming more popular. Um, you know, certainly if you're close to some, like a national park or some attraction skiing mm-hmm. or something like that. I don't know that it'll get really big in, you know, communities like Kaysville where we're not really that close to anything, mm-hmm. but um, it, it's becoming more of a thing. But the accessory dwelling units, now that there are, um, you have to allow them under state code. 
I don't really think we're going to see a big impact on our communities because, quite frankly, there's already a bunch of them out there. There are. They're all over the place, just not legal. I completely agree. And we were... most people don't even know it. It, well, it's true, and that's that's what's interesting. The impact to to the neighborhood, to the to the residents, isn't isn't big enough for people to be complaining about it. Yeah. When our son and his wife were looking for a house here in Kaysville, I would say probably seventy percent of the homes that we were shown had people renting. Yeah. And and I'd ask, well, is it separately metered? And the agent would say, well, no. But 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 you could still do it. Yeah. You know, and and this house, by the way, does have a renter downstairs. Yeah. And so it was interesting and very enlightening to me. I didn't know that it was as common as. Yeah, it is. it's really common, and and I think because of that, I mean, it's really a good way to to increase your housing uh, in your community and not have a really big impact on your communities mm-hmm. and on your community services. You know, I I really say to people a lot of times, I say, well, now all of a sudden you're going to have four or six people living in that house where there were only maybe two before. Yeah, but maybe they had a family before too and they had two or four or six kids. With cars. With the, you know, and as they got to be teenagers with their cars, how is that different? And it's not really. That's that's true. (laughs) I guess if the city had a way of capturing some tax, I guess, and some income from that to benefit the cities in terms of road maintenance and right. everything that comes along with more traffic. Yeah. That that you're right might not even really be more based upon the family that could live there with all of their teenagers which we have in Utah. Yeah. It's an interesting interesting discussion. I I hope that I hope that we stand up against um a single family zone changing to just be a housing zone. Yeah, I don't I don't think that's appropriate for I, I, this case, and the reason though. I don't think it's going to happen in Utah is because I think there's still a pretty good collaborative discussion going on between the legislature good. who would have the power to institute that and the communities. Um you know, and I really would credit the League of Cities and Towns. They they have a great relationship with legislators and it's true. Um, I think there's a lot of back and forth dialogue going on there and the cooperative attitude and, um, you know, it's, it's really interesting because people do say, you know, that, uh, that local land use regulation suppresses the building of new housing. But when you look at the housing statistics, particularly in Utah, last year for the number of new uh, building permits issued for new construction, new housing, it's at the highest level it's ever been in the history of the state of Utah. We are building more housing now than we ever have in our history. Apparently, it's still not enough. But it's going in that direction. I don't think the local communities are really suppressing it all that much. So um, but we are doing our parts then. To some extent, we could do more. And obviously, it looks like we need to do more because it's not enough. Yeah, it's not enough. But then at the same time, do we have to be the end-all, be-all Well, and that's there's, there's been a lot of discussion about that at the state level saying, why are we still doing you know, promoting for new businesses to move into the state of Utah mm-hmm. because we already have so much growth going on and new businesses come in, they're going to bring in new people and where are we going to put, put them? Well, and that brings <laughs> us to our next discussion or topic is, which is water. Yeah. You know, I get an email probably at least weekly or a phone call saying, what in the world? Why isn't Kaysville putting a moratorium on growth? If you're telling me I can't water my lawn, then why are you, you allowing more people to move in? Yeah. What's happening with all of that? I mean, yeah, there's no question. I mean, the drought has really brought out the issue that we have a, a water availability problem. Um, it's 
something that um, has just really come to the fore in the last little while because of the drought. And it just makes it so, so much more obvious. We're, gonna, we're growing. And I don't know how we turn off the tap to stop growing because we have one of the highest birth rates still in the nation. So we have a lot of new kids. And, you know, those kids and the parents don't really want their kids to leave. So you want to provide them housing here. And then we have a very strong economy in the state of Utah. So we've got people moving into the state for the work. And so given those two factors, we're growing. The last uh, census, the last few years, we have uh, been the highest growth rate state in the nation. Which is incredible. Um, Yeah. So, you know, we have got all this growth coming. The question is now, have we got the water to accommodate that growth? And the answer to that is a little tricky. It's a little complicated because of the way we go. The interesting thing is um, we actually, for doing a lot more growth, if you look at the amount of water that's available in the state of Utah, we probably have enough. But a lot of our water is being used for agriculture. And agriculture uses a lot of That's, water. I've read those statistics. Way more than on a, you know, on a, on a per, per capita basis or mm-hmm. just on a, not, that's not the right measure. But, but just per, per household kind yeah. of basis. If you, when you convert water from being agriculture to being now for new homes and businesses, mm-hmm. you can, it supports a lot of homes and businesses. If we were to stop doing agriculture in the state of Utah altogether, we'd have plenty of water for growth. We'd but have then, plenty of water. But that's not going to happen, right. nor should it happen. Yes, that's right? true. That's but we need to figure out ways to be more efficient with agriculture, number one. We also need to be more efficient with how we develop our homes. And that goes to the question of should we be putting big yards mm-hmm. in big lots? Yeah, that's... Big, you know, a mm-hmm. lot of grass. Right. Maybe we need to look at developing in ways that's going to be less water intensive use in order to do that. And um, uh, that's what we need to start looking at. But at the pattern that we're growing at. And the issue for a lot of communities is not that they don't have water availability. It's that they don't have a way to get that water into their system. They don't have water tanks. They don't have wells. So it's infrastructure. They don't have the water lines. They don't have the stuff in place so that they can deliver that water. And so it's going to take some time. Mm -hmm. And with the growth rate we've got, the demand's coming on really quick. And we actually have about three or four communities in the state of Utah at this point that have put a moratorium on growth because they say we haven't got the water. Mm-hmm. What they mean by that is we need to develop more infrastructure in order to be able to deliver water. That may take some time. But, um, I, you know, That's... unfortunately, I think I'm beginning to see a little bit of an attitude of some communities saying, hey, we'll just stop growth and we won't grow anymore at all because we'll just say we haven't got water. Which isn't. And that's not going to, that'll build pressures. You Mm -hmm. think, you think the price of housing is high now? Wait till we try something like that. That's true. And then see what the cost of housing is going to be that, that's available then. Gosh, there's so many decisions and questions. People are, you know, telling me, well, if the state's not slowing the growth by putting moratoriums on development and, and making it a state mandated thing, then the water issue is probably not really a big deal. Yeah. And that's what's hard because that messaging is, is difficult. Either we panic people and we scare them to death, but at the same time, we're still developing and we're doing high-rise apartment buildings in Salt Lake and in other communities that are bigger, yeah. that, that can handle more density. And then even in Caseville, people are taking a single-family lot and turning it into five lots, sure. you know, subdividing it. Yeah. And we allow that to happen. 
then it's hard because it seems like a mixed message. Yeah, it does. And hopefully we'll be able to, I guess, better better present that. I don't know. It's, it's uh, You know, thing. I mean, the only way to really stop that is to stop growing. And I don't know how we stop growing. Well, and that's, and, I mean, it's impossible. Yeah. We, we keep having kids. Yeah. Our kids want to live here. Our parents want to live here. And that's why I've been an advocate for maybe some diverse housing options because we right. have parents that want to Absolutely. live here. They've li- This is their home. Right. And their kids don't want them to live on a half acre anymore right. because they don't have time to mow their lawns. Yep. They don't have the money to zeroscape the whole thing and fill it in with cement. And the parents don't have the ability to do it for themselves. Yeah. And I'm so getting to where that do they point leave? in my life. You know, I'm, I live on a 10,000 square foot lot and big yard and everything. And I'm going, uh, <sighs> I don't want to take care of this much longer, you know, but where am I going to go? And yeah. we are, we have seen a couple of developments in Kaysville that allow for, we have some friends, you know, that moved into one out of our neighborhood into one where, with a really small mm-hmm. yard, lot area. But I mean, it's perfect. Yeah. It's it would just be great nice. for them. We need more of that. We do need more and of yeah, that. And you know, so. when that, that development was proposed in Kaysville, we got the residents from around that area that were so upset about that. They were. Because they did not want those smaller lots because it was going to, I can Ruin go their listen lives. to the tape. I, you I know, think the, I was the, in that the, the, We had people that came in and said, we, that's, these people won't fit into our neighborhood, mm, so, right? Yeah. People that I, were in my neighborhood moved on into big that. lots moved into those littler units because that fit their lifestyle better now as they age mm-hmm. those are the kind of people they're the same people <laughs> right you know so it's That's just, what's so yeah. that messaging <laughs> is so hard did you have any advice for we've got some new council members and within davis county even and, and in the state we've got a lot of new um leaders what what's your advice as they're making decisions during city council meetings and people come in and they complain they say all these things well and for kaysville specifically um, you know, we, we get a lot of pushback whenever we have, and we're getting more proposals now for high, for rezoning some properties for higher density development. The issue is really, um, is it appropriate? And when you look at the plan and where these properties are located, it kind of, it, it, it would work because they're generally along busier streets mm-hmm. and they're not in the middle of the residential neighborhood. Um, I don't think it's appropriate to put a, a lot of those in the middle of a, I, I agree. of, of a residential neighborhood either. Even though I do think duplexes or triplexes would generally probably work just fine in the middle of any neighborhood. If they're um, built if they're in the built, right way and well, they're built to That's match. right. Absolutely. I agree. Um, but be. in Kaysville, we only have two or 300 acres of land left to develop. Mm-hmm. We don't have that much property left. And some people are afraid that by saying now that we, we were, are, would be open to higher densities in Kaysville, we're going to change the whole character of Kaysville. We're not going to change the character with two or 300 acres. And we're not even talking about all of those two or 300 acres being potentially developed with higher density. But we're saying it may be appropriate in some places, mm-hmm. like true. near transit or along the busier streets or uh, adjacent to commercial areas. You know, that may be the places where it's appropriate. So we're talking at most maybe 100 or so acres of it's, new it, undeveloped and land. And that's only if people want to sell their acreage and some of these people who own this property don't. Right. And and so. Right. And so, you know, so it's not that big of an area. We're not going to change the character. Kaysville's character is pretty well set. It is. Um, and, and it's great. And that's why we live here. Right. I mean, I remember moving to West Kaysville thinking, oh, a half acre, this is going to be great. But it was also 15 years ago yeah. where I was a little bit younger and we, we had kids at home to help us mow the lawn and, and do all of those things. Yeah. And so life does change. Yeah. And so now I think if we get some 
diversity. You talked about people as they get older, they'd love to stay in Kaysville. Mm-hmm. Well, great. Let's use some of those properties and do some smaller lots, maybe high, a little bit higher density so that these folks can move out of their big half acre lots into a place where they don't have to maintain a yard anymore. Mm-hmm. Let's do some of that. Let's provide some places for apartments where our kids, as they're going to college or graduating and just getting married or whatever, that they have a place to live and they can be close to family and don't have to move to West Valley, for example, to an apartment or something like that. You know, let's just provide some diversity. Let's provide some. And it's and it's not going to be that much because we don't have that much land left to develop in Gaysville. It's true. And, and as you're talking about this, I, I can think of our council previous council as well as our current, who say, well, we've got apartments. Tell them to move to Farmington. Yeah. Tell them to to move to Layton. And so it's hard. It's hard. It's it's an interesting discussion. And and at the same time, I believe these people who have invested in land over the years have the right to sell it. And when people came in and say they just want to make money, I'm thinking, well, of course they do. What's wrong with that? Yeah, what's wrong that, with that's that? That's part of, that's, that's why the they, works. this is how it works here. It's, it's called capitalism and it's, it's democracy and it's what we support. It is. Well, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. I could talk to you for days and days <laughs> and you're just so full of information and great advice. It would be fun. <laughs> and you. it is fun. I appreciate, uh, you know, having the opportunity to serve a little bit and hopefully try to do some good things. You've done great things. I appreciate your advocacy and just your, your education. And, and the fact that you're able to teach as you're talking. Oh, well, thanks. Because I learned so much from you. Well, thank you so much. Will you tell us about your blog so that oh, people can sure. find it? Well, so I actually started writing uh, on land use issues when I was the legislative chair for the planning association because it was a way to get information out to all of the planners and planning commissioners and elected officials who were interested in land use issues. And so I started writing. Um, I had a, 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 a listserv, an email listserv for a long time that I would write and send that out on. And then somebody said, well, why don't you do a blog? Well, when I really got blogging, this is going to be blow your mind a little bit, I think. <laughs> but I really got into this whole blogging thing when, on the legacy highway fight. Oh. And uh, when, when the whole initial idea of putting in legacy highway in Davis County, and it was being very strongly opposed by the environmental groups. And so, and they're very active and social media at that time was just really kind of an up and coming thing. It was just getting going Mm -hmm. and the environmental groups were pretty good at it. And there were some of us that said, you know, we should do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And so the main instigators of this were Gary, uh, Gary Uresk, who is a good friend of mine. And he was the city manager of Woods Cross for a number of years and he lives in Kaysville. Um, and we got together and then we had a very good friend and ally who joined in with us, who was in the state legislature at the time, Stuart Adams. Oh, So good. the three of us kind of became the three musketeers and we really got this thing going. And I didn't know that. And we, I mean, it was quite the deal. And I even wound up personally debating Rocky Anderson, the mayor you did? of Salt Lake City about that the legacy highway. Yeah, that was really interesting. But that got me started in this whole writing. And so as the legislative issues and land use issues came up, I just kind of kept going. Then I kind of dropped it because it's, it's kind of hard to do. And when I was working full time, mm-hmm. it's hard to keep that up. You You've know? got some mad blogging skills then because we know who won that debate. <laughs> <laughs> you guys did really well. Well, it was people like Stuart Adams and others, you know, that really got into that and helped, helped carry that along. But um, so when I retired, and I started working with this outfit called, it's called the Utah Land Use Institute. It's a nonprofit. 
Every year we do a big land use law conference and I've been working, I've been on their board for a number of years. And they said, well, now you're retiring. Why don't you come work with us part-time? So I said, sure. So that's what I'm doing. And then, and then uh, Craig Call, who's the executive director there said, why don't you get your blog going again? We could really, that would be a really good thing. So I thought, sure, why not? I've got the time. So I started it. Up it's again. great. And, and I write not only on legislative issues and but just on land use issues in general. So it's on the uh, Utah Land Use Institute website. Well, it's really interesting. I love your your <laughs> headliners and your topics, and it's, it's interesting and it's so informative. Well, thanks. I really appreciate I, that's it. That's what I shoot for, but uh, it also puts me on the record sometimes, and I think, ah, I could get in trouble with this, but oh well. <laughs> what I love about you most is that you're genuine and you are true and, and honest, and, and, and you do what you believe is best. Well, thanks. And you make good decisions. Thanks, Will. You got it. Thank you. 